Hi there, brave fundraisers, and welcome to episode 64 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is the podcast for anyone who works in fundraising and who wants some ideas, some encouragement, and maybe a dose of inspiration to help you enjoy your job and raise more money, especially during these turbulent times. Today, if you're a major donor fundraiser, or if part of your job is to manage high value fundraising for your charity, I think you're going to find this episode really helpful because today I'm going to share a conversation I recently had with a wise and hugely experienced fundraiser named Angie Turner. Angie is head of philanthropy at a charity called the Children's Trust and across a 30 year career, she's performed a number of fundraising roles in this and other charities. I've long admired Angie not only for the amazing results she consistently achieves and for her understanding of fundraising and her ability to share that, which you'll get a sense of in a minute, but also for the way that throughout her career, she's made time to help so many other fundraisers across the sector. For instance, for many years, she's played a really influential role in the major donor special interest group for the Institute of Fundraising, and she's currently chair of that group. In the last financial year, fundraising results through major donor fundraising for Angie's charity were up a fabulous 28% on the target that they'd set before COVID hit. In this interview, Angie shares some of the key principles and tactics that she's learned over the years that have helped to achieve these results. Like all my interviews recently, I recorded this conversation remotely, but I need to mention that this time there were a few moments when my broadband caused the audio recording to wobble a little bit. So please do excuse that, and I hope it won't distract you from the ideas that we explore. So here's my chat with the excellent Angie Turner. Angie Turner, welcome to the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. Hello, lovely to be here. I'm excited. Thank you, Rob. Yeah. So you, you and I had a quick chat the other day, and I was so impressed by the various things you've been doing this year and the way your very loyal, generous donors have, have stepped up massively this year. And in a moment, I want to get into some of the, the things you, you focus disproportionate energy, I think, as a high value fundraiser in doing to help that to happen. But just in terms of, of context, please remind me and so the listeners can get it. What's your job title and what's the name of your charity and how long have you worked there? Hi, well, I am the head of philanthropy at the Children's Trust. And amazingly, I've been at the Children's Trust for 22 years in various roles, um, head of community, head of corporate and now head of major donors. I love major donors. It's my favourite area so far, something I'm very passionate about. And Angie, one thing I often find interesting is to ask people who come onto the podcast, you know, what their route into the fundraising sector was, because those two stories tend to be the same. What was that for you? I was in foster care when I was very little. And when I was three, I was adopted. And I always wanted to make a difference to the charity sector, so after I graduated, I volunteered at the NSPCC and three days a week doing silver service waitressing. I was the worst waitress. And then I got the experience at the NSPCC. And then I joined the breast cancer campaign as the first fundraiser. And I've been a fundraiser for nearly 30 years now. And it's been an amazing career. Wow. I think one of the reasons I have always got inspired when you and I have had little chats and catch catch-ups at various conferences when our paths have crossed over the years is 
Yes, I, I always learn things about major donor fundraising and so on, because that's been your focus for a while. But I've always had this sense of this breadth of experience because you've done various different kinds of fundraising. And clearly there's ways that helps. In terms of today's chat, I would like it to be primarily about that high value space. Uh, in a moment, I'd love to hear some things you found that are even more important than ever during fundraising in the pandemic. But just to set the context, you said to me before that your donors have been amazingly generous at a time when clearly fundraising has been hard in certain other areas. You've done really well even in, in, in terms of really top line results. What, what have the results been for your last financial year during the pandemic? We had a very ambitious target at the beginning of the year and I was pretty petrified. I think it was going grey by the day, but we have had an exceptional year. And I'm very proud to say that at the end of the year, financial year, we were 28% over our original target. Oh, my very much grey now. Yeah, well, I mean, goodness knows. These are extraordinary things. I mean, you know, I, I'm fortunate to talk to lots of fundraisers who are working their socks off and, and who, who are managing to succeed. But I also know how hard it is for lots of charities and lots of fundraisers and they're working their socks off and it hasn't worked out that way. Um, and it has been my experience that when someone does consistently well year after year, it's usually not luck and it's usually not just about a particular, you know, brand that is attractive, for instance. There's usually reasons why consistently they're managing to get these really impressive results and um one of my joys for the last many years is, is trying to find out what those people spend spend their focus on and, and maybe how they how they see the job so if that's okay um i'm guessing you've you've had to do lots of different things this year but if you were to start me off with with one of the key ideas or principles that has remained important this year what would it be I think one of the really, really key things is really getting to know your donors. Who are your top 10 or your top 20 donors? Where do those donors live? Who they are? And really, I always think I'd say to a new fundraiser, treating your donors like your godparents or your great aunt, how would they want to be treated? How you do those handwritten cards, handwritten envelopes, the call, not just called from you, but from the trustees or the chief executive when those donors feel very valued they really want to continue making a difference they're really proud to be making a difference and the beginning of covid we sent out a covid appeal and it was fronted by the chief executive and then we followed it up by calls and personal emails and donors really were gave exceptionally as well i think that we over the years, we've had donors that have only given a really small amount of money, but we know that there is potential for them to give them more. And we treated those donors exactly the same as the top donors. And I think that is absolutely key. So an example was we had a donor who used to give £40 a month. Okay, £40 a month for the last four or five years. But we knew that there was potential for more. So I would always drop them a handwritten note with any appeals, um, send them nice little emails. Never used to get much response, but I knew one day I did. So I was sitting at my desk at home, sent them a COVID appeal, and I had a call from a donor who said, we know that you were giving you a small amount, but we would like to give you a large donation, and we want to do a match giving appeal, and we would like to give you £50,000. 
I think I nearly fell off my seat. I think <laughs> one of my highlights of my fundraising career, yeah. it was absolutely brilliant. We then launched another match giving appeal with this donor and we raised an additional 50,000. So their donation enabled us to raise over 100,000 pounds plus gift aid. And this is the donor who gave us 40 pounds a month but I think the really key thing is it'd be very easy not to know, know about that potential of that donor. And then I could have, we could have passed them over to the individual giving team. So the really, really key thing is, I think, is um, how you treat all your donors and knowing who your top donors are. Yes. What an amazing story. And the truth is, if we had all had loads of time, I think most of us would think we would achieve that consistency. I think mm. the really tough stuff is is managing to f have the system and or the discipline to not be attracted by the most obvious, shiniest, you know, rich option or the thing that's right in front of your nose, but to, to, to care enough about each of those donors to be really caringly doing each of those tactics consistently. And I think in practice, often that can turn out not to be easy. So that's one thing. I really admire about your your discipline and I guess another one I think lots of our listeners would say it would be great if I could get my chief exec to be involved and proactively doing that but I've tried and you know some of my colleagues my senior colleagues don't quite get it they see us as a cash cow but then they don't make time for that um and I'm there's no silver bullet but from your experience do you have any tips either in terms of the making time for that consistency of the actions you do or any, any tips for how you've managed to help your colleagues or senior colleagues make time for this being an important thing. So it's not just you being a good fundraiser, it's helping your, your, your charity want to do relationship this well. I think you have to treat your senior executive and your chief executives as major donors themselves. And really, we know that they are very time poor. They really want to make a difference, but they might, might not necessarily have the time. How can we make it very easy for them um, to be able to work with sort of the major donors? How can we brief them sort of very, very brief emails, um, bullet point emails, um, engaging them? And really, when we actually get results in their meeting, updating them, engaging them, so they really feel involved as well. And we know, I know sort of like that of our donors, who's going to get on well with the chief executive? Who's going to get on well with the fundraising director? Who's similar to the trustee? And actually pairing our donors up with a key person that they will engage with. And then really having stewardship plans for each of these donors with the chief executive. So the chief executive might call up say six or seven donors every quarter and he will have his sort of top donors he will know i will prepare documents i will prepare letters and all he needs to do is maybe sign those and edit those letters as well and really making it as sort of simple as possible as well and really developing those relationships between the chief executive it doesn't have to necessarily have to have a lot of time so i maybe i would do the tour and i would introduce them to therapists or doctors on site and maybe the chief executive just tops and tails those meetings but the donor really appreciates that time with the chief executive 
I love this, Angie. And what I'm hearing is, at its simplest, you're as thoughtful about how you positively influence and, and build that sense of, of doing these things internally as if they themselves were major donors. Yeah. And, and, and my, my sense is sometimes the reason that doesn't happen in their charities is a, is a fundraiser can get exasperated because they feel they shouldn't have to. From their point of view, needing to raise money, surely everyone in my charity can see the value in, you know, we've got to get the money. Why on earth aren't people, why do I have to be thoughtful about kind of sort of going through these steps to try and make that happen? Don't they get it? And my view is in that moment, you're less likely to, if you're exasperated by it, you're unlikely to really respect what's going on for them and therefore put the effort in. And as soon as you accept, well, okay, right now they might may not get it. So you know, because their job is to do finance or their job is to run the organisation, in, in the moment you don't expect them to get it automatically, then you become willing to do these things. So it starts from a, a point of, you know, your first point, I think, Angie, was let's work hard to understand the donors. And, and this second point seems to be work hard to understand the point of view of your colleague and if the harder you work at that then the more likely you are to help you know work with them to make it easy for them to do yes absolutely and i think it doesn't always have to be the chief executive there can be other people in the organization whether it's the head of nursing or whether it's a head physiotherapist or whether it's a new trustee and it's and i think that's why it's so important to use your linkedin contacts who does the chief executive know? Who does the head of finance know? And linking in with them. And as soon as you've got a meeting with don't have a donor, really looking at the sort of like the network mapping and who knows who and what would their connection be. I think that's so important. Ah, yes, that's uh, a great point. And I have heard sometimes some fundraisers have got stuck when the one figurehead who they thought was essential and that the donor would need to be able to talk to. If that, for whatever reason, that's not possible, often the, they sort of, that's it, chief exec or nothing. Whereas in practice, it does not need to be that particular figurehead. And I sense there's a real flexibility you've got to, there's various different ways we could solve um, the need for the donor to talk to someone with a different level of expertise or authority. And again, it's going back to sort of the great aunt or your godparent. Who are they going to get on well with? Are they Scottish? Do we have like a Scottish director of finance? Or is there somebody that's mad about Chelsea Football Club? I love it when I have a donor (laughs) who loves Chelsea Football Club. And I know they're going to get on so well with our chief executive. The difficulty is most of that meeting might be about Chelsea. (laughs) But it's that engagement. And we've had our chief executive been invited to Chelsea matches and yeah. Every single letter that they write, he always writes a little Chelsea comment. And it's those things that are so important. It is it might sound obvious, but it really is building those relationships. It's then getting the chief executive to do little handwritten cards on birthday cards to the donors, all those little things. It's just relationship yeah. building. And so what's coming across really strongly to me is just kind of your whole mindset is let's make this as human as possible rather than as formal and on a pedestal and dry as possible. All the, all the richness of the detail of personality is, you know, that's what makes relationship work. If I were to um, ask you to pinpoint another of the principles that you've learned 
to give attention to and sounds like has been important even more in the pandemic year, what would the next idea be? I think we've all had to really look at sort of our virtual events. And I think when we started off, we were all dreading it. We thought, oh, my God, virtual events, is it really going to work? But they have worked for us. And we've really looked at how we can do things differently. So we launched our Big Give Christmas Appeal and we hand-delivered mince pies, homemade decorations to about 30 of our key um, volunteers and donors. Um, we had a team of volunteers delivering those and they were just so pleased in the pandemic to actually see someone in person. They were so excited and it really built that relationship and they were so pleased to come along to the event. To be honest, they're not going to come along to the event and not make a donation after a nice yeah. mince pie from a local baker. So that worked really well. We also did some virtual tours, which was led by the chief executive. Um, people could have a look around site virtually. That worked well. We had quite a few strategy meetings with the chief executive. We were worried about how they were going to work, but they worked really well. And at each meeting, we would invite three or four different donors. We'd look at sort of who would work well together, who would match. Who, um, so we had three or four donors in a meeting with our director of fundraising and our chief executive just to talk about our new strategy, ask them for advice, and they work really well as well. Hi, it's Rob, and I wanted to jump into the middle of this episode really quickly to tell you about something I'm so excited about, which is the way that our Bright Spot Members Club has been helping fundraisers to not only survive, but also to do really well, to raise funds so effectively during the pandemic. Through the club, our 300 members get access to a whole library of my best training films, as well as regular live coaching sessions to help you handle whatever challenges are coming at you each week. And we've also found that handling these challenges has not just been about getting the right advice or strategy, it's also been about morale. And we've found that the encouragement and help that our members get from each other has really helped them to stay positive. If you're not yet a member, but you'd like to find out more, go to brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. That's brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. I would love to welcome you to the club and do my utmost to help you succeed in your fundraising. For now though, back to the interview as I asked Angie how she plans activity to build relationships with major donors. In terms of um, your approach to your pipeline and to, to looking after the, the many donors, especially those who are initially might feel able or want to give it a smaller level what's your approach having a clear strategy and pipeline is absolutely essential you really are going to need to know who you're going to approach during the year who are your top 10 20 30 donors how are you going to approach those so donors who give you a hundred pounds you're going to treat very differently to donors who give you sort of twenty thousand and maybe it's the donors that give you 20,000 that are going to have the private calls with the chief executive or they are going to be having handwritten cards as well. So having a clear stewardship plan for each area of your donors is really important. And then meeting regularly to talk about your pipeline. I think it's very easy to have a number of donors on your pipeline and you just need to meet regularly about how you're going to approach those who is the best contact. Contact mapping is absolutely essential. So some of these donors, we 
we don't know them yet. They are quite cold. How are we going to be able to contact them during the year? Who's going to be able to introduce us to them? Um, and some of them we have to invite to our events and they never apply. What is that golden thing going to be that's going to make them attend that event? Is it the location? Is it someone else that's going to invite them? But for every single person, we have to have that sort of strategy and that sort of golden sort of moment. What's, what's going to change it for them? Mm. And what I've found is that lots of people aspire to be that thorough and for a variety of reasons it doesn't quite happen then they feel guilty that they haven't got such a plan for some of their donors um i'm curious uh, what i've observed is it doesn't need to be the biggest document the fundraisers who do well they're okay if it's you know a relatively short you know can be even half, half a page can be a, a page I, i'm curious about what your approach would be how you manage to actually follow through on this you know, sensible principle and the second thing is just in practice I'm guessing you devote some thinking time to, to the solving of these problems, but is it also true that you know once a month you have a catch up and there's one or two colleagues who join you for these conversations, or just so that our listeners can get a sense of in practice, you know, what have you learned? A to create the plan, and B to do the creative um, seeing of connections. So every month we will have a meeting with the sort of fundraising director and a couple of the heads of department looking at these key donors and what are the actions that we've done this month, what are the actions that we need to do, and actually having that in the diary is absolutely essential. If you've got a database, setting yourself reminders. I know from going to your training many years ago how you would encourage everyone to make those three calls to those donors. And I think being at home, sitting at home by yourself, it's sometimes pretty terrifying to call up one of these donors. But then just again, going back to that godparent of the aunt, and what are those three things you want to tell them? And actually asking them about themselves and how they're coping and just thanking them. I think it's so important to call your donors. And even if that is your strategy, um, you're going to call one donor. Every, every donor is going to be called at least once or twice a year. You're going to do them a handwritten letter. And sometimes my team get a bit mad, but we, every single um, envelope is always handwritten. We don't put anything in a window envelope, always handwritten cards. All those little things really make a difference. And they can be your strategy. It doesn't need to be a big, long strategy. It's just like, what are those key things that are going to make their difference with each and every donor? You might just need one single thing. So for me, another example would be I met up with a donor who lived in Essex. I knew that a young person who joined the Children's Trust was about three miles away from where he lived. I updated him about him. And then every time I met with him, I'd give him a little update about Albie. He first gave a donation of £200. Um, five years later, he's pledged a donation of £10,000. And it is really that personal contact, storytelling is absolutely essential. If you can't be passionate about your charity, tell those stories, stories that really relate to those donors, that is absolutely essential. Thank you, Angie. And 
there's another thing from when you and I were talking the other day, I remember you saying how hard you and your team have worked at match giving appeals. And that's really been successful this year. Uh, remind me what the, the gist has been in terms of that kind of activity. And then after that, maybe we could hear any tips you've got about uh, making them work in practice. Uh, during the year, we had two big give appeals. One was for Christmas and one was for our COVID appeal. And we raised, um, the target for each of those was to raise £50,000 and we matched those as well. So that was great. And then later on in the year, a donor wanted to make a donation to us and it was for £50,000. I asked him whether he would do a match giving appeal and he said yes. So we wrote to some of his contacts and some of his friends and some of our supporters saying that we've got this match giving appeal. Um, any donation they will be making in the next three months will be matched and um, it will be going towards um, the shortfall for the COVID appeal. Um, so that was very successful as well. And we had donors who normally would give a small amount who really gave sort of exceptional donor donations um, because they wanted their gift matched. And we had also other donors who would give £100 or £200 a month normally who made another donation of £5,000. So these were exceptional additional donations because it was a matched gift giving appeal. And... Oh, congratulations. And one thing about it is is maybe some of the listeners, it would not currently occur to them as a proactive strategy when talking to the existing major donor that they might want to and enjoy using their willingness to give in this way. And what's interesting to me is you were proactive in having that conversation and then you because you had, had that idea and were able to talk it through with him or her, it led to such a bigger result, which must have been, obviously it raises more to help your cause, but it must have been more satisfying and more exciting for the donor. Absolutely. And I remember one of your sessions many, many years ago, sitting in a big room, you were at the front running around and being very enthusiastic. <laughs> something that you said about being brave. And it is sometimes terrifying when you call up a donor and you're asking them for a large donation and then asking them for a match-giving appeal, it's diff really difficult. I think if you feel passionate about it, you've got a really good project. So if somebody had to raise £10,000 for a certain appeal, then they could go to a donor to say, we want to raise £5,000. Would you make that donation? And everything will be matched. I think having a specific project is absolutely key. And match giving appeals can be really small. It could be for a thousand pounds. And do I think it's really important to test as well. How would it work with your donors? Is there a Christmas appeal or is there a piece of equipment that you need to get raised? Could you test it out? Could you ask a donor to make a donation? Um, for this specific project and then it will be mapped I think is key. Yeah there's just several advantages to this approach as far as I can see one of them is it there's a certain kind of personality that just loves the the entrepreneurial excitement of that being a slightly different ask that you're making and that multiplier effect 
be just and so that might cause the fundraiser to be a bit more brave as as you just mentioned in 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 wanting to raise this as an idea at all because the idea is slightly different so that's one thing that i like about i it. also think what's good this year is rob i will be able to go to some of our donors and saying last year we did three match giving appeals which were very successful we've never done this before We'd like to do another one again next year. Would you make a lead donation? And so they know that it's worked so far. Donors really like it. And so it's a tested approach, which I think is good. So, Angie, I see various advantages in this uh, concept of the match giving appeal and the charity being proactive in raising that as a possibility with some donors who initially may not have thought that way. Um, in terms of the feedback you give to the donor as the appeal is running or feedback they give you that, that they're enjoying that technique. Is there anything you wanted to add? And then secondly, uh, I sense that a key bit of it is it uh, is not only good to help donors they don't know, but also doing it this way might encourage them more to be willing to share with some, some of their contacts. Yes, absolutely. I think it's absolutely key to update the donor on their match giving appeal. I'd send them little WhatsApp messages or little um, emails updating them or I'd call them. I think it was really important when a, they had a new donor who'd given to us for the very first time and how we would never have engaged them unless it was for their match appeal. Then they could really see not only were they making a donation, but they were getting, we were getting new donations from lap donors, um, which was really key. We also used social media. So we had a campaign on Twitter with a match giving campaign. And we generated new donors. Um, they wrote to some of their friends and um, to encourage them to make a donation. And I don't think they would have done that before. So we tried to make it as easy as possible, really engaging those them. And knowing that they really made a difference. And obviously at the end, there was a little handwritten letter from the chief executive with a handmade card made by the children to really thank them as well. And I think it's those little different, different steps that really make a difference. And that donor will really, really engaged. And hopefully they will be able to do that again next year. I haven't asked them yet. I'm not quite brave enough yet. <laughs> uh, my goodness, Angie, you've been so busy in this challenging year, uh, not just surviving and maintaining, but doing these proactive things to help your, your donors and your colleagues uh, make this amazing philanthropy happen. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast to, to sh share some of your examples and, and the, the lessons you've learned along the way. I hope it's going to really help our listeners to, to do more of these things, which they might have some of these ideas, but following through on them is is not always easy. And uh, the stories you've told, I think, will really help. So, Angie Turner, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Well, I hope you found Angie's ideas and examples were helpful. If you did, please do remember to subscribe to the podcast now so that you never miss an episode. For a full transcript and a summary of this episode, go to the podcast section of our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. As I mentioned earlier, we're really proud of the results being achieved at the moment by fundraisers who are in the Bright Spot Members Club, which is the training and inspiration club we run for fundraisers. 
If you'd like access to our weekly masterclasses and our problem solving sessions and to all my best learning bundles and our supportive community, then please do check out the club today. To find out more or to just dip your toe in and try it for just a month, go to brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. Now, I'd like to say a huge thank you to everyone who's been spreading the word about this show to colleagues and on social media, helping us get these examples and tips out to as many charities as possible during the pandemic. I really do appreciate your help. Angie and I would love to hear what you think about today's episode. We're both on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Angie is at Angie Carter UK and I am at Woods underscore Rob. Thank you so much for listening today. Best of luck with your fundraising and I look forward to sharing another episode with you very soon.